Welcome to the Lancet Oncology Podcast. I'm Aaron Van Dorn, speaking to you from the Lancet's New York office. I recently spoke with Dr. Richard Carvajal, Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University in New York, about aspects of treatment and research surrounding rare cancers. Dr. Carvajal, can you tell us a bit about the series and how rare cancers are defined? Rare cancers have been defined either by the prevalence of the disease or by the incidence of disease. And something that's been somewhat challenging is the definition of a rare cancer, whether by prevalence or incidence, has not been consistent. For instance, if you look at the U.S. National Cancer Institute definition of rare cancer, it's those with an incidence of less than 15 per 100,000 patients per year, whereas in Europe, ESMO actually defines it as an incidence of less than 6 per 100,000 per year. So that's a pretty marked variation. Overall, though, using these definitions, about 20 to 25 percent of all cancer patients actually have a rare cancer diagnosis. Part of defining what a rare cancer is numerically, it's also important to define what are we considering a rare cancer. For instance, as you can imagine, 100 years ago, cancer is really defined by the organ of origin. So it was a lung cancer, a liver cancer, a colon cancer, and so forth. And then with the development of microscopy and histology, things became a little bit more refined. So for instance, in lung cancer, we're talking about adenocarcinomas or squamous cell carcinomas or small cell. With the advent of molecular oncology, now we're talking about EGFR-driven or ALK-driven, CMET-driven, ROS-driven lung cancer. And every time we do that, the definition of cancer in general changes, as does what we consider a rare cancer. So I think this series is very timely with the changing definition of rare cancers, not by organ site, not by histology, but more by molecular markers, the incidence of what we consider rare cancers is actually being increasingly more common. And so now the number is closer to 50% of all patients with cancers actually have something that we would consider a rare cancer. But one thing that I like to use as an example, in addition to, for instance, lung cancer, if you look at, for instance, melanoma, and this is a disease that I see fairly frequently, you know, in 2015, there are about 74,000 cases of melanoma a year. And so if you look at incidence, that's 23 cases per 100,000 patients per year. That is not a rare cancer by either the U.S. NCI definition or the ESMO definition. But we no longer consider melanoma as one disease entity. And with the recent TCGA analysis, it's clear that there are different molecular buckets including BRAF mutant melanoma, NRAS mutant melanoma, NF1 mutant melanoma, or what we would consider now triple wild-type melanoma, melanomas that are wild-type for BRAF, NRAS, or NF1. And the most common of those subtypes are BRAF mutant melanoma, and the incidence of that is not 23 per 100,000, it's actually 12 per 100,000 per year. If we define melanoma molecularly, it goes from being a common cancer to a collection of multiple rare cancers. And that's happening now with virtually every single disease. You know, with this pattern, this progression, ultimately we are moving in the direction where every one individual patient's cancer will be its own disease as it's characterized by its unique molecular characteristics, its unique immunologic characteristics. That's why this series is so timely. What's presented in Lancet Oncology is a series of three articles. One is by Boyd et al. entitled The Landscape of Rare Cancer, A Sea of Opportunity. And this is a very nice manuscript that discusses what I was talking about previously, the evolution of the concept of rare cancer over time. And it does a very nice job reviewing the importance of molecular and genomic classifications of tumors in terms of prognosis and treatment selection, which is something that we're doing now for both standard of care therapy as well as selecting patients for clinical trials. Blay and colleagues have a manuscript entitled The Value of Research Collaborations and Consortium in Rare Cancers. 
And this is very important because to conduct research, particularly clinical research in rare cancers, it's extremely challenging. And that does require collaborations between investigators, various research consortiums, industry, regulatory bodies, patient advocacy groups to efficiently and rapidly complete these clinical trials to make progress in uh, how we treat and understand these patients with these diseases. The third article in this series is by Billingham and all, titled Research Methodology to Influence Clinical Practice for Patients with Rare Cancers. This article talks about various biostatistical designs and trial designs that can and perhaps should be considered for rare cancer research. As you can imagine, with the fewer number of patients with these trials, which leads to challenges with accrual and so forth, we can't do the several thousand patient uh, phase three randomized trials in all rare cancers. It's just not feasible. And so this manuscript goes through various methodologies to answer the question, does a treatment work? using a smaller number of patients. So what are the major issues facing rare cancer clinical research, and what are some of the challenges that patients with these diseases face? The bottom line for patients with rare cancers is that the outcomes for patients with rare cancers are inferior to those with more common malignancies. There was a prior study looking at outcomes for patients with quote-unquote rare diseases or rare cancers versus those with more common ones. And the five-year survival was 47% for those with rare cancers versus 65% with those with more common diseases. And reasons for that, and there are multiple reasons for those inferior outcomes, including difficulties or challenges with diagnoses. If you look at sarcoma, which is a very heterogeneous and uncommon malignancy, up to 30 to 50% of diagnoses of sarcoma are changed when the slides, the pathology slides, are reviewed by an ex expert panel. If you have patients being diagnosed and treated in non-expert centers for sarcoma, up to a third of them may actually be treated for a disease that they may not have or that they may be treated for the wrong sarcoma or the wrong type of malignancy. You know, obviously that's a huge problem, and this is just because of the rarity of these diagnoses. There are many pathologists who they see one or two cases of sarcoma a year. And when you consider that there are more than 50 different subtypes of soft tissue sarcoma, clearly this puts that pathologist in a challenging clinical situation. And so when those cases are reviewed by an expert sarcoma pathologist, the diagnoses are you know, not uncommonly changed. So what is being done currently to address these concerns about patients who have rare cancers? So there's increasing efforts in providing patient ed education, physician education, expanding awareness of rare cancers in general, and the need for additional laboratory and clinical research for these patients. You know, in terms of clinical trial conduct, there's a strong efforts by cooperative groups, including the U.S. cooperative groups, ECOG, SWAG, the Alliance, URTC, in focusing their efforts on a rare cancer trials. I think there's increasing collaboration between industry, academia, advocacy groups, and so forth in rapidly accruing to priority rare cancer trials. There are groups like the International Rare Cancer Initiative, which is a fantastic consortium of the Cancer Research UK, URTC, Inca in France, USNCI, in facilitating rare cancer research across countries in, in, in the international setting, again, to facilitate accrual and speed up progress in research for these rare cancers. Can you tell us anything more about the regulatory and industry standpoints on rare cancer research? I think there's been, again, an increasing interest from both regulatory bodies as well as industry sponsors in promoting rare cancer research. From the regulatory authority standpoint, there already has been guidance for the 
conduct of clinical trials and rare diseases by the EMA. Uh, there's recently been draft guidance released by the FDA. And I think, to their credit, both groups acknowledge that some of the standard aspects of drug development and clinical trial conduct that's commonly done in more common diseases may not be feasible in rare diseases. But they also both go on to say that the requirements for efficacy and safety are still re required for approval. Both groups have been, in my experience, very open to speaking with academic investigators as well as sponsors in how best to design trials in, in rare cancers. So they've been very supportive in that aspect in terms of successfully conducting rare cancer research. In terms of industry sponsors, there certainly was a time when drug companies would not want to focus their efforts on rare cancers. And clearly, you can think of just from a monetary incentive, you know, these rare cancers are a small market. But more and more, as we are increasing our understanding of biology, better able to select patients based on molecular aberrations or even immunologic criteria as to which patients are more likely to benefit from specific therapies. Sponsors are noticing and acknowledging that these rare tumors with key drivers uh, may actually have very high response rates in clinical activity to specific agents. And so they can utilize these niche indications for rapid registration strategies. More and more industry is actually very interested in, in pursuing rare cancer studies. Well, Dr. Carvajal, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you.